Now, Hallett, I got to know, did you look in Dropbox and see what the sermon was? Okay, that's okay. That's all right. It's okay to plan. The Holy Spirit's in that too. But uh, the song that he just sang fits very, very well with this morning's sermon. And we've seen times in the past when the, a song selection or something like that, uh, nobody has any idea who's doing. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, and the Lord just orchestrates that. So the Lord was in that too as well in Hallett picking that song this morning. If you were to look at the national polls about what people's number one concern is over even a long period of time, you can go back several years, the consistent single theme people worry about most is the economy. You might have thought it was something else, especially when you watch the news. Basically, most people worry about their money and all the things that might affect their money. Other things like terrorism that's in the news or education or national security or immigration, all the concern about all these things rises and falls according to the news of the day. But always at the top of the list is the economy or some aspect of the economy. Have you ever thought about why is that? Why is that? Well, at least it's in part true because of our self-interest. We seem to think that if the economy is good, we have jobs, we make enough money, the cost of living isn't going up too fast, then almost everything else is secondary. Now, clearly, money is important. Without it, there's only so much that we can do. Without it, we can't have a roof over our heads, we can't get around from place to place, we can't clothe ourselves or feed ourselves. We all understand this. You may have heard this. In spite of the cost of living, it's still popular. Think about it. We think about money. We make plans about money. We certainly spend money. And none of this in and of itself is a bad thing. I did some financial planning. It looks like from my financial planning that I can retire at age 62 and live comfortably for about 11 minutes. <laughs> you know, I have this uh, app on my cell phone. It's a new service from my bank, and they'll text you to tell you your balance. And I like most of the things about this app, but there's one thing I don't particularly like. Right at the end of the text, after my bank balance, they put these little letters LOL. <laughs> it's been said that it's better to be poor and happy than rich and miserable. Now, I'm wondering if there's not a happy medium in there somewhere. Have you ever thought about that? Such as, I'm moderately rich and just a little bit moody. <laughs> the truth is, we think a lot about money and things, don't we? We think a lot. Believer and unbeliever are very much alike in this. And the truth is, the Word of God actually has quite a bit to say about money and possessions. In fact, there's a lot more in the Bible related to money and possessions than there is about faith and prayer combined. Did you know that? Jesus himself spoke more about money and possessions than he spoke about heaven and hell. What's that all about? Money is not evil, nor is money the root of all evil. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, isn't there a verse that says money is the root of all evil? Well, that's not true. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So now we're getting somewhere. Our perspective 
about money is what matters, not money itself. The place that money and possessions have in our lives. The Bible doesn't condemn money and possessions. It speaks much more of the place that money has in our hearts and how that inevitably will impact our lives and our faith. Rightly used, money is a needed and an incredible asset in the kingdom of God and in our individual lives. What it comes down to is our heart attitude about money. This is seen clearly in the passage we're going to read today. It's a long passage. If you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to read from uh, verse 13 through verse 34. If you don't, you can just listen along as I read from this passage. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who has made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what can we learn about God's perspective on money and possessions from this long passage of Scripture we just read? Well, I think there's a lot of different things, but for this morning's purpose, I have identified seven things that we're going to look at from this passage of Scripture this morning. 
First of all, we are not what we have. Our wealth or lack thereof does not define us. Secondly, we learn from this passage of Scripture, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. We need a monetary eternal perspective just as much as we need an eternal perspective on life itself. Third, God provides for us. He is the giver of everything. Fourth, because of that, we needn't worry. We needn't worry about having what we need Worry is a waste of our energy. Number five, we must seek his kingdom, making God the first priority in our lives, and then we'll have what we need. God will take care of everything else. Number six, any treasure on earth that we have is temporary, but all heavenly treasure is eternal. It lasts forever. Now, this point is where we get this morning's sermon title. You may have heard of LifeLock. You've heard that advertised. You've seen it on TV, radio, whatever. It's a service that monitors all of your financial transactions for you. And it looks for and helps protect you from things like identity theft or illegal transactions using your name, your credit cards, etc. That can really ruin your credit and your finances. But verse 33 of Luke 12 tells us, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So our treasure properly sent ahead to heaven is safe. No thief can get at it. Nothing can destroy it. It does not fail there, even when our money or our stocks or our retirement plans on earth may fail. It is the ultimate life lock. It's the ultimate protection for our things. And finally on our list, but really the key to the whole thing, this passage tells us that our hearts reveal where our treasure is. And the reverse is true. What we treasure reveals our heart's condition. The last verse, verse 34, says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now in this parable, the rich man had a lot. He had so much, he had to make plans to store all the stuff that he had. Have you heard the old adage, he has so much money, he doesn't know what to do with it? Maybe you've known people like that. Anybody known somebody like that? I've known a few. The wealthy person who gets uh, gold-plated bathroom fixtures when normal ones will work just fine, the plumbing in that will work just fine. The rich person who has a house with so many rooms, he hardly ever gets to some parts of his own house. Well, the man in this parable was apparently that rich. He didn't have enough room to store all the crops, and that was wealth in that day, all the crops that he had. So after refusing to get involved in a dispute over an inheritance, Jesus told the gathered crowd a parable about this rich man, preceding that parable with this thought, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We are not what we have. If you're poor, that's not who you are. The same is true if you're rich. Possessions are things, they are not you. Here we see the beginning of the warning about what money and things can do to us if we're not careful. Jesus said, take care. Be on your guard, Jesus said. 
That indicates a threat, doesn't it? Why would we need to be on our guard if there wasn't some kind of a threat in money and possessions? We don't often think about money and things as threats, but they clearly can be. Our unredeemed selves are naturally covetous. That means we want it. We want more of it. And even as redeemed believers, the old sin nature can make this a challenge for any or all of us. We want what we don't have, and if we have it, we want more of it. Whether we need more of it or not, we worry about it. We worry about having enough. But God promises to meet our needs, not our greeds. Despite what Gordon Gekko said in the movie Wall Street, greed is not good. When our lives are bound up in what we have to the point that what we have becomes our identity, then we're in trouble, folks. Then in Luke 12, we learn a little bit more about the rich man's plan. He had so much that he didn't know what to do with it all. His plan was to save up so much of it that he could relax and never have to work again and never have to worry anymore about having all that he wants and all that he needs. That seems to be the American dream, doesn't it? Isn't that what most people in America are looking for? Why else would people spend so much money on lottery tickets or other get-rich-quick kinds of schemes? I heard someone say once, I've done the calculation, and your chances of winning the lottery are identical whether you play or not. Those are not good odds, folks. But nevertheless, people will spend their hard-earned money on the lottery or gambling. They'll spend money gambling in that blight on our culture that we see all over our state called casinos, hoping to hit the jackpot. Why? Why? Why do people do that? Why do they spend money on the lottery, hoping for that one in a multi-million chance that they're going to get rich? Why do they go to the casinos? For the same reason the rich man wanted to build bigger barns to store all of his crops so he could kick back and never work for a living again. Never again have to worry about having enough, enough money. All your financial problems taken care of. Now that's the dream, folks, but you know what? It's not the reality. It's not the reality. Fortune magazine earlier this year had a story which told us that 44% of those who have ever won large lottery prizes were broke within five years. Nearly a third declared bankruptcy. That means they were worse off than before they became rich. Other studies show that lottery winners frequently become estranged from family and friends and incur a greater incidence of depression, drug and alcohol abuse, divorce, and suicide than the average American. Did you, did you ever think you might see this article right on the outside of one of the casinos? or as a warning when you buy a lottery ticket. So often the world's experience just illustrates the truth of Scripture, like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Right before the verse about the love of money we just read, it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then, of course, we read verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, clearly also, the Word of God is not against prudent saving. We noted earlier that our challenges with money and possessions are not in the money and possessions themselves. 
It's how we use these things or sometimes how they use us. So let's be practical here. Does Jesus teach us that saving is wrong? Does he teach us here that material things are all bad, that we shouldn't have wealth? And should we, as Christians, renounce these things? Well, this is where common sense comes in. And you know what? Common sense is a very God-given thing. Where does common sense end and hoard or greed begin when it comes to money and possessions? And we're going to just take a quick look at several passages of Scripture, and I think we begin to see the balance here. Many of them are from Proverbs, a great source of wisdom for us. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. In Proverbs 13:11, it says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. In Proverbs 10, verses 4 and 5, it says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, we read this, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If God gives us the ability to produce wealth, then wealth can't in and of itself be a bad thing. And we read in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing wealth on those who love me, and making their treasuries full. This is just a simple sampling. We could read many more passages of Scripture. We can see that God can and does bless His people, and that ultimately there's no spiritual value in despising material things. There's also no value in indulging material things, but things are not evil. It's only that we have this tendency to make foolish or even sometimes evil use of money and things and become idolatrous in our attitudes towards money and possessions. Jesus accepted poverty during his life on earth, but he didn't do that because it was virtuous. He did that because to save us, he needed to leave heaven's riches behind and become human. In the word of God, the rich are condemned only for their misuse of riches, not for being rich. This is just a sampling, again, of Scripture about the goodness of material things as a blessing from God. But this rich man in the parable was foolish, according to Jesus. He was storing up things only so he could enjoy them himself and wouldn't have to rely on God. He could be financially independent, independent from God. And it was a useless, stupid investment. Why? Why was it a useless and stupid investment? Because his stock market was about to crash and make his stuff worthless. Folks, he was going to die that night. Jesus was saying, you can't take it with you. We've heard that phrase before, haven't we? You can't take it with you. Meaning that when you're dead and gone from this earth, the things you have that seem to be worth so much today, at that moment, they become absolutely worthless to you. So Jesus was primarily arguing that growing materially wealthy isn't morally wrong in and of itself. 
It's just a poor investment. Material things won't last. They won't stand the test of time. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to invest or to save or to store. He's just saying to us, don't make a stupid investment. Stupid's not too strong a word here. He called the rich man building the bigger barns a fool. Why was he a fool? He wasn't making a smart investment. He was making a stupid investment, an investment that wouldn't bear lasting dividends, if we want to use the language of economy. So make a smart investment, Jesus told us. Make an eternal investment with the things that I bless you with. Invest them in eternal things. Now, Randy Alcorn writes of this in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And here's an interesting passage from that book. He writes, when we think of missionaries, we often visualize simple people with no aspirations for treasures or greatness. We miss something in missionary martyr Jim Elliott's famous words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We've, most of us have heard that, right? We focus on his willingness to sacrifice and serve, and that's there. That's definitely there. It's part of it. But we neglect his passion for personal gain. So Randy Alcorn encourages us to reread his words, and you'll see that Jim Elliott was a prophet seeker. What separated him from the common Christian wasn't that he didn't want treasure, but that he wanted true and lasting treasure. He wasn't satisfied with treasure that would be lost, only treasure that would last. It was a simple question of relative value. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, ahead toward eternity, where it matters, where it lasts. What did Paul tell the Philippians about their giving toward his needs? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, not that I'm looking for a gift, he said, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. What account was that? It has to be a heavenly account, folks. What we give today towards God's purposes counts for eternity. It counts for eternity. That's what it means in verse 21 of Luke 12, our main passage today, when it says we are rich towards God. That's what it means in verse 33 when Jesus tells us, provide for yourselves money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. It's the ultimate life lock. For our investments. LifeLock may be a good idea to protect your temporal investments and finances because thieves do approach and thieves do steal. And the economy and the stock market, it changes. Sometimes it crashes. We lose jobs. We lose money. That's the reality in the world we live in. But the idea here is that while our earthly treasures are subject to the whims of our sinful world, what we invest in the kingdom is not. It's safe, it's secure, and its fruit lasts forever. Also quoting Randy Alcorn, he had the, what I thought was a great illustration uh, about the comparative value of these investments. He said, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. And you plan to move home as soon as the war is over. Now, while you've been in the South, you've accumulated a lot of Confederate currency. Now, suppose 
you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent, what will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer, right? You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have any value at all once that war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. As believers, we have inside knowledge of a coming change in the worldwide financial and economic situation, don't we? The currency of this world will be worthless to us at our death. It'll be worthless to everybody at Christ's return, whichever comes first. This knowledge should radically affect our investment strategy, folks. For us to accumulate all kinds of earthly treasures in the face of the inevitable future is the same idea as stockpiling Confederate money. It's not just wrong, it's stupid. Now, most of us are also not like the rich man. We don't have so much that we have to build bigger barns. We're nowhere close to having so much money, we don't know what to do with it. We don't have so much that we have to worry a lot about our investments. I know there's many here who don't have any investments. We have everything we need to get by, or maybe just enough to get by. Maybe we have that, somewhere between that and a small cushion between financial ruin and a relatively comfortable lifestyle. But does that mean that this passage of Scripture doesn't apply to us? Sometimes we can let ourselves off the hook, well, I'm not rich, and I ain't never going to be rich, and so this doesn't apply to me. The message to the rich man is the same message to all of us. Being rich toward God is for rich or for poor. What God teaches us about money and possessions was not written just for wealthy Christians in North America, but for all people at all times in all places. Jesus didn't commend the rich fool, but he commended the poor widow. Remember her? The widow's mite who gave just a small amount, but it was all she had. Jesus used her as a model for giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 was the longest passage we have on giving in the New Testament, and it starts by focusing on the Macedonians who lived in, it tells us, extreme poverty, yet who gave not simply according to their means, but beyond their ability. And another key to this application even for the most poor among us this morning, is in verses 22 and following, when Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, my guess is that part of the passage hits a little more close to home for most of us. While the rich man wanted to store his riches so he wouldn't ever have to worry anymore about having enough again, many of us worry about having enough today. We don't have a big barn to go to. We couldn't afford to build one and wouldn't have anything to put in it for the future anyway, even if we had it. But Jesus' words are powerful here. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry 
about your clothes. God feeds the ravens. He'll feed you. You're more valuable than birds. And besides, how does worrying about these things help? I'm your provider, God says. You can trust in me. This, as we've noted, is not an admonition to sit back and be lazy. The Bible also tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay? But sometimes we're willing and we're not able. We're willing to work, we're not able. Sometimes the work we have is not enough to provide as much. But the admonition here remains. It's the same for all of us, folks. Whether you have a lot or you have a little or you're somewhere in between, trust me. God tells us, trust me, don't be anxious. I, God says, I am your provider. The rich man was trusting in his riches and his wealth. He didn't feel the need to rely on God. And what did God call him? A fool. But we all rely on God. If we have plenty over and above what we need, it's because God's provided this. If we have food and clothing and shelter and not much more, the same is true. It's because God has provided this. Verses 28 through 30 in Luke 12, If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And then we see God's solution for our needs, always. Instead, Jesus says, instead of worrying, instead of being anxious, seek his kingdom. Trust him. Seek him. Make him your priority. Make him your treasure. A parallel passage in Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This clearly lays out our priorities, folks. Work's not unimportant. Money's not unimportant. Food, clothing, and shelter are genuine needs. But seek His kingdom. Seek Him first. And all these things, all these needs will be taken care of. Ultimately, it's our heart attitude that counts. And that's seen clearly in the closing verse of this section Verse 34 of Luke chapter 12, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do we make sure our treasure is in the right place? We invest in eternal things. Not just our money, but our time and our talents. Every good and perfect gift that God has provided for us, we invest in eternity. But specifically with our money and possessions, which is the context of this passage, the way we invest in eternity is by giving away our money. We give it away, it no longer has power over us, does it? Of course, that statement actually has it backwards. If we're God's slaves, we don't own anything to give away anyway. We're just giving back what God has already provided us. So how we use our money and possessions is the leading economic indicator of our hearts. It speaks to our eternal values or the lack thereof of eternal values in our hearts. Writer named Richard Halverson wrote that money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. Think about this. When Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, you remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? 
When he encountered Jesus, he said he would give half his money to the poor and pay back four times more than he had taken from those who he had cheated in his job as a tax collector. Now, Jesus didn't respond to this by saying, way to go, Zacchaeus, great idea, good job. No, he said in Luke 19.9, today salvation has come to this house. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? Jesus connected the reality of Zacchaeus' salvation to his willingness to cheerfully give away his money for the glory of God. Isn't that a cool thing to think about? Where is your treasure today? Where is your treasure today? Can we, can you, can I, can we as a church, can we as individuals trust God, not building bigger barns, but consistently giving toward his kingdom work, giving to TCF, giving to TCF missions, giving to other worthy kingdom purposes. Great quote here by A.W. Tozer. The man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend on that creed being true. Let me read that first sentence again because I want you to get this. The man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed. In other words, the things that I say I believe, but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend on that creed being true. He always provides himself with secondary ways of escape, a way out, essentially. So he will have a way out if the roof caves in. So what I say, if what I say is really not true, I'm leaving myself I've got that safety net, right? What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do in the last day. You can't provide anything for yourself in that last day, folks. You will have to rely completely and totally on your trust in Christ for your salvation. Can we trust him that much with our stuff, with our money? with our possessions. If our faith is real, we will trust God and our treasure will be consistently invested in our heavenly account because it's the ultimate life lock when our treasure is in his kingdom. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which so clearly in many ways gets under our skin when we consider money and possessions and we consider how often We are just like the world in the way we view these things. But Father God, even though we recognize that saving is prudent, it's a good thing, it's commended, working is a good thing, Father, we also recognize that we want to be investors in eternal things. So help us, Father. We know that will look different for each of us, Father, based on what you've given us. But Heavenly Father, help us to be just radical givers to your kingdom work, investing wholeheartedly, Father, because we know that where our treasure is, there is our heart, Father. We want to be people whose treasures are in heaven and not on this earth, Father, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can come in and steal. We want to be those who invest in kingdom realities, in eternal realities, Father God, the things that you've blessed us with, So, Lord, impress this on our hearts. Help us to be a people who invest 
wisely and not stupidly like the rich fool in this parable. We thank you for these truths, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.